that's an interesting perspective, isn't it? To be able to see people as the Lord sees them, to be able to understand the problems and the issues that they're dealing with, and to have a real unique sensitivity to their needs and a greater understanding of how do we minister to them? How do we how do we help people? How do we see them as God sees them? I, I thought as I saw that video uh, last night on Facebook, you know, my favorite place, Facebook. And by the way, I can't relate to that guy's impatience at all. You guys know that. But it, it brought to mind the, the passage in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus is going through all the villages in Galilee and there are hundreds of people following him and he's teaching in the synagogues and, and giving the gospel and, and healing people. And, and Matthew, who is probably viewed by culture as insensitive and, and unfeeling because he was a tax collector. Remember, we looked at tax collectors last week. He actually writes a beautiful description of what Jesus felt. And he says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that statement alone shows us God's heart for mankind. It gives us an understanding of, of what God feels and and why Jesus went to the cross, why, why he died for our sins, why he rose again to, to, to make that payment and to offer us salvation and eternal life when we trust him. But before he did that, right after Matthew details Jesus' compassion, he records something that Jesus said to the disciples, which is very applicable to us today as much as it was then. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, if you've been in church any length of time, you've heard that text before, and you've probably heard a message about it, and you've heard about the responsibility that we have in the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. But I want to focus this morning not on that, but, but just on something a little bit different. Julie and I were having a rare breakfast together on Friday morning, and we were talking about some some history stuff that Jacob had been doing for school. And, and there was an amazing fact that just hit me in that conversation. And, of course, you know me, I tore off a little piece of paper and I started to write little scribbles that I couldn't read later on. But the Lord just impressed something upon my heart, and it hit me so clearly that God has done something amazing that that we need, I believe, to understand this morning. So if you have your Bible, which I hope you do, and and you guys are so faithful to bring your Bibles. Thank you for doing that and being ready to study every week. But let's turn to Luke chapter 12. Because here Jesus tells a parable that has a very strong calling to us as his disciples. But it also contains a, a very powerful concept that I have just been so humbled by in the last 48 hours. Last week we talked about the centurion and about the faith that he had and how Jesus marveled over that. Jesus was amazed at his faith. He hadn't even seen faith like that among his own people. Because the centurion trusted the word of God. He trusted that God's word was sufficient for anything in his life. But what stood out for us was the application about his unworthiness. And about he was very acutely aware that he was not worthy of the Lord. That he was inadequate and and especially in comparison to the greatness and the majesty and the, and the power and the authority of God, that, that was so obvious to him. And Jesus spoke about that. How that is the attitude that we have to have. 
Now this morning, I want to just kind of continue on that theme a little bit uh, with another fact that, that may humble us even more than what we studied last week, and it's here in Luke chapter 12, because here in this chapter, Jesus calls us to responsibility that is almost unthinkable. Not because we can't do it, because by the Holy Spirit's power in our lives, we can do it, but because in my mind, and maybe this is just my opinion this morning, it, it's hard to imagine that this is a good idea. God has given us an assignment. God has put responsibility on us, and because it's his assignment, we're supposed to respond to it with great humility and a, and a deep sense of respect and a huge measure of commitment. But what we're going to see this morning is not something we can just kind of say, well, that's a nice concept, and, and, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll think about that and consider that a little bit and, and maybe see how that fits in, uh, into my life. That's not what this is. This is a great calling that God has given to us, and our only response can be humility and respect and commitment. So let's look at the text, and as we read it, I want you to be an English student, okay? How many loved English class in high school? Yeah, three of you. That's good. All right. So as you read, though, everybody knows what an active verb is, right? Nod your head just to let me know you're alive. Okay. I want you to notice as we read the active verbs that Jesus uses here because he has a very intentional purpose in using them. Start chapter 12 of the book of Luke, verse 36. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and they will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves." But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready. The Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everybody else as well? The Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers." And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And in whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask him all the more. Now, it's kind of a strange passage. And it's unique just in its overarching um, atmosphere because Jesus has got thousands of people following him. We see that in the start of the text in verse 1. There's so many people that it's like a mob scene. They're stepping on each other. It's, it's like, you know, Toys R Us 
on, on Black Friday. People are, are insane to get the super soaker, so they're stepping on it. This is worse than that. People are crowding. They want to hear his word. They want to be healed. They want to be touched. They want some sense of the presence of God in their lives. So they're pushing each other. They don't care about decorum. They're, they're just shoving and trying to get close. And thousands of people are coming up, and Jesus is teaching them. He's talking to them and giving them insights. But at the same time, he's teaching his disciples directly. And it's such a, such a mix. In fact, if you read this chapter, he kind of goes back and forth. It's so much of a mix that Peter, when Christ tells this parable, kind of says, uh, which, who are you talking to now? Is this for them or for us? Now, God's word has a different purpose depending on who is hearing it. It's designed to instruct and convict and call the non-believer to repentance of sin and faith in Christ. It has that purpose of going directly to the heart of someone that's not trusted in Christ. At the same time, it has an effect on us as believers. It's designed to teach us and train us and correct us and, and rebuke us at times and to show us the leading of the Lord, to tell us what God's plans are and how we're supposed to live. So on one hand, Jesus is challenging the crowd. He's telling them, that they need to quit loving themselves so much, because apparently that was as much of a problem then as it is now. So he's talking about things, about how they need to, to stop loving themselves and stop thinking about themselves and stop trying to put treasure here and stop being so materialistic. He, he calls them to that, and he says there's an ultimate judgment, and you're going to be accountable to God for what you have done and what you valued in this life. But at the same time, God is loving and he's sufficient, and if you trust him, he'll save you. That's one message. The second message is to the disciples. And in starting in verse 1, he warns them about the Pharisees. He says the Pharisees are, are, are man-centered. They're teaching things that are all about us. They're hypocritical, and you need to be careful of them. You need to be exceptionally focused on the kingdom of God. Now, if you were at prayer meeting Sunday night, you know that we define the kingdom of God as the rule and authority of God over all things. And he has an eternal kingdom that is forever, that is in heaven, and he will set up at some point an earthly kingdom, a thousand years reign of Jesus in Jerusalem. So, so God has an eternal heavenly kingdom. It's called the kingdom of God. And he says to the disciples, to us, you need to be uniquely focused on that. Now, when you get to verse 34, which is right in the middle of the passage, it's kind of a transition verse between the two illustrations. And this really is the linchpin idea for both audiences because it emphasizes that what our heart trusts in and prioritizes defines what we really love. What you think about this week, what you spend time on, what you spend money on, what you what you allot into your schedule, what is a priority to you, is what you really care about. It is what you love. It's what you value the most. Now, for those of us that trust in Christ as Savior and love Him and, and are living, trying to live holy lives that will please Him, that reject self and, and push aside the world's priorities and, and live by what God tells us to, that means that there's a way that we are supposed to live and will live that is not only distinctly discernible from how the world lives, 
but it shows that we have a future purpose in mind. What did you do in the last 168 hours that was for the eternal purpose of God? What did you do that was thinking, this is what heaven values, this is what makes me more like Christ, and this is an eternal treasure that I'm laying up in heaven versus the valuing of what is here? How many of the last 168 hours have been spent like that? How many of the next 168 hours till we meet again next week, Lord willing, how many of those hours will be spent on the kingdom of heaven? Now, Jesus says, here's what my servants do. Here's what my disciples do. And I want you to see, starting in verse 35, that he uses very descriptive, active verbs. First of all, in verse 35, he says, be dressed in readiness. Not relaxed, not inattentive, not unprepared. In other words, don't be in your spiritual pajamas. Don't don't be lounging around saying, well, I'm saved and the Lord's coming back. Praise the Lord. I'm so excited that I'm going to be going to heaven and I'm covered and my sins are forgiven. I still struggle a little bit with sin, but I'm going to heaven and everything's good and I'm ready to go. So I'm going to get my PJs and I'm going to wait. Jesus says in verse 35, be dressed in readiness. Then he says in verse 36, be like men who are waiting for their master to return. Not not passive, not preoccupied with other priorities, not I'm so caught up, so busy, just don't have time for it. Next week it'll be better. But constantly aware, looking for him to come back. And then he says in verse 37, be on alert. Because he's coming back soon. Don't be caught off guard. Be 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 don't don't even be just just ready. Well I'm ready for the Lord to return. Are you? He says, be on watch. That's what the word means. Be on watch. Give strict attention to it. It requires a disciplined focus. Now, all of these are are talking about two things. They're talking about the return of Christ, and they're talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the church will be united with Christ in complete holiness, and where God will claim us as his bride. Now, as he points to that, Jesus says... Here's how you're supposed to prepare. And verse 37 gives us the first indication in the text that the Lord is a very unique and loving and gracious master. See, the groom is called to serve the bride. Men, let's not forget that that was the vow we gave and that that was the calling that we have from Ephesians 5, that we are supposed to give ourselves to our brides. It doesn't stop after we get married. Oh, it's great. We're married, we're on the honeymoon. Now we can settle into normal things and I can treat her differently than I did when I courted her. No, we're supposed to give ourselves to the bride. Jesus proves and showed us how we do that. It says that he gave his life for us by dying for our sins. Now that would be expected of the groom, but the text goes a step further And says, not only does he serve the bride, but he serves the servants at the wedding. Nobody would expect that. But that's what Jesus tells us. Look back at the text. We get a beautiful picture here. It says, Jesus girds himself to serve. Kind of a strange phrase that we don't really relate to. But but just kind of imagine that this is a long robe. It means basically, you tuck the robe into your belt 
so you can get ready to serve. So nothing's encumbering you. That's a good look for me, right? So nothing's encumbering you. It's just kind of getting yourself ready so you can serve. Because if you've got clothes that are dangling and getting in the soup and whatever, you're not going to be able to serve. So he says, Jesus girds himself up to serve. And that he takes the servants, look at it, at the wedding, and he says to the servants, you recline and I'll come serve you. Can you imagine such a thought? I don't know about you, but as I read and studied that verse, it made me very uncomfortable. Why would the Lord of all creation, why would the God of all, why would the one who has authority over all things, why would the one who had to save me out of my sin and rescue me by sacrificing himself, why would he serve us? Shouldn't we be serving him? Shouldn't we be the ones who are saying, Lord, no, as Peter did when Jesus came to wash his feet. Lord, no, let me gird myself and serve you. But that's not what Jesus does. And this is an amazing thought. We've done nothing for him. We deserve nothing from him. All we've done is offend him. And it's only by his sacrifice and his mercy that we have been redeemed and secured forever. So why would he serve us? Verse 38 says, Blessed are those slaves who are ready for his return. Isn't that an understatement? That God would bless us in that way. It gives us an incredible insight into the heart of God. That he would look at us and say they are important enough to save. But it goes a step further. He looks at us. Get this now. And he says... They are important enough to me that I am going to give them an assignment to serve me and watch for me so I can come and minister to them. But the assignment has even more depth. And this is where it really gets humbling. Look back at verse 40 for a minute. He says to us with extra emphasis, you be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect. That warning really hit me this week. As I thought about the inauguration this weekend and and the incredible uncertainty and turmoil in the world and how different our view is now of our role in the world. I'll explain that more in a minute. But but even with, with how aware we are as believers of what's happening even in our own country, And how it aligns with what we're going to study in the book of Revelation. It's sobering. And it should catch our attention. To see Jesus say. I'm coming back sooner than you think. I am coming back sooner than you think. Now you say. Well well, Paul I'm watching and I'm waiting. How could he surprise us at this point. And yet Jesus says. It's going to come when you don't expect it. you're, You're not aware You need to prepare and be alert so you won't be surprised. And as we prepare and are alert, then Jesus gives a responsibility in verses 42 and 43. He says, here's the responsibility as you watch and wait, as you're clothed, as you're ready, as you're preparing for my return, as you're on alert watching for me. Here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to serve in my house and I want you to minister to each other and take the gospel to the world. Now, this passage has specific application to ministers who are the leaders of the body of Christ and are accountable to preach and serve other believers. And that's a, that's a faithful and very serious calling. The person that serves in that way needs to be actively doing that until he returns. But Jesus says it goes a step further. Look at verses 45 to 48. This calling is not exclusive to pastors and ministers. What Jesus is saying here is to the disciples, but it extends to all believers. He's not just saying, well, you guys are in charge of the church, and when we get to Acts, things are going to happen, and you guys are going to be at the lead, so I really want you to get this. He's speaking to all believers. We know that because of verse 48. He talks about the servant who assumes the master is not coming back anytime soon. Well, I know a lot of stuff's going on in the world, but I don't, I don't know. I just don't sense that Jesus is coming soon, and I think we've got some time. We can talk 10, 20 years, you know, just, just kind of let my life play out. Uh, Jesus says, I'm coming back sooner than you think. And if you take the attitude that it's not happening soon, here's what's going to happen. Look at verse 45. He says, you become careless with the Lord's investment. And you start to callously live for yourself. And he uses the example of drunkenness here as a, as a metaphor, and it's a justifiable metaphor for being out of control and, and kind of unconcerned with living for the Lord. And then Jesus says in verse 48 that the biggest offense is that the servant knows the master's will, but doesn't live according to his will. Think about that, how, how serious an offense that is. That the way we live sometimes is saying, I know what God wants, but it doesn't really matter. I know what the Lord wants from me. I know what the Lord expects from me. I know what his word says. I know he wants me to do certain things as a statement of my love and gratitude for him for what he's done in my life. But, but just for a season, just for a little time, that's not really important to me. Live by his word. I'd like to, but there are other things that I want that don't align with that. So I think I'll just kind of ignore it for a while. That's a position of not expecting that the Lord's coming back. And Jesus says, and it's very odd words here that I don't really even understand. He says, I'm going to discipline that person for their coldness and their indifference toward me. And then he gets to the bottom line. Then he says, now, I want you to hear this. Because you need to understand the expectation that I have. Look at verse 49. He says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. I don't believe there's any way that someone who has experienced the grace of God in their lives, that someone that knows what it means to walk from darkness into light, that someone knows that it means to be forgiven of sin, Forever. I don't think there's any way we can misinterpret or misunderstand that thought. To say that we have been given much is a radical understatement. To say that God has given us much doesn't even begin to, to grasp the scope of what we have. Everything that we have is from God. He's given us life. 
Not a worthless life. Not a life with no capacity to reason or to feel or to think. We don't function as robots. We don't, we don't work simply by our gut instinct like an animal does. We have been given a valuable intellectual life that has an eternal purpose and an ability to respond to the love of God. That's the starting point. And then God gives us moral parameters because he knows we're self-centered. He knows we live to please ourselves. So he says, I'm going to give you a law. I'm going to give you guidelines on how you should live, not only to please me, but so that your life will be what it's supposed to be. Your life will be what I created it to be. The law of God is not just him saying, you guys have to do this. He's saying, if you want to be fulfilled and content and know why I created you, this is how you live. So he's given us life and he's given us morality. And then he's given us inconceivable love and care. And he sets out a plan to convince us of our failure, convince us of our complete and utter inadequacy to save ourselves. And then he proves his goodness and his grace. He sends Christ as our substitutionary sacrifice. And he says, Christ is going to establish complete victory over sin and death and hell forever because he's alive. And if you trust in him, you can partake in that. And then he goes a step beyond that. He says, I will provide all your needs, and so much more. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will secure you for all eternity. And to prove it, I'm going to seal you with my own spirit. And to top even that, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of promises. And I'm going to give you a family of believers to help you and encourage you and spur you on. And I'm going to give you a great calling that you have to fulfill. God has given us much, right? To whom much is given? Look at the last part of the phrase. Much is required. Not to be saved, but to be his disciple. And to make sure that we understand what a tremendous privilege that calling is, Jesus says something in verse 48 that I hope will humble us and really excite us. He says, you have been entrusted with much. The word is very descriptive in the Greek. It means to deposit, trust, and commit to someone. Now, I want you to stop and think about that just for a second. God has entrusted us with much. What does that mean? It means that God trusts us enough to invest in us and to give us the assignment to prepare people spiritually for his return. Now, that concept just just overwhelmed me this week because I've always thought of trust as us trusting the Lord, right? Everything in Scripture tells us that. By grace are you saved through faith in Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Hebrews 11 says, we gain approval through faith. Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of your faith. James says we should love the tests of faith because they make us mature and complete. He says faith must be strong and without any doubt. 
Faith is always vertical. It's always us toward the Lord. Lord, we trust in you because you alone are worthy of that. But this passage in Luke 12 gives us a radical concept. It says God trusts in us. And you go, what? God trusts in us? Why would he trust us? We're miserable failures. No offense. We're, we're, we're worthless. Come on, we studied that last week. We, we offer nothing. We need to be redeemed by him. Yes, we do. And when God redeems us, he says, now I'm going to trust you with a great responsibility. Now I'm going to show you that you have a calling and a responsibility to serve me. Can you imagine that God would trust you and me with that job? And yet it's supported all throughout Scripture. In Acts 1, he says, you need to be my witnesses. Bold, unashamed. Don't be scared to talk about me. Don't be ashamed of my gospel. In Matthew 28, he says, go out and preach the gospel. Not just the pastors. That's for every believer. Go out and preach the gospel. Baptize people so they can take a public stand for their faith in Christ. And then help them mature. John 15 says, you need to be bearing fruit. You need to be bearing fruit in abundance. That will show that you are engrafted with me, the branch into the vine, and that your fruit will remain so it influences people's lives. And then in Matthew 25, he says you need to reproduce this work. You need to reproduce what I've done in you in other people through your gifts. Don't squander them. Don't bury them. Use them to bring people to Christ. And the final assignment, 2 Corinthians 5, he says you're to be my ambassadors. You are to represent me to the extent, this is what the text says, 2 Corinthians 5.20, to the extent that people will conclude that God himself is making an appeal through you. Can you imagine that? That we would be so close to Christ and so aware of this assignment that God's given us and, and just overwhelmed by the fact that God trusts us with it that when we speak the gospel, people will say, that's the Lord speaking. That's not Rhodes. Nobody should ever see us. Heaven forbid that people see us when we speak the gospel. They should only see Christ. And God says, I will work through you and people will hear the appeal from my lips even though you're the one that's saying. That's not a light calling. Room got very quiet. But this is what Jesus does. He trusts in us. Now let me close with this because I think it's really important. This is what kind of spurred my thought on this. It's very important that we understand the scope and significance of this spiritual responsibility. Back in the 19th century, many Americans felt that the United States was supposed to expand west. They believed that God had formed this country and that it was very unique and that, that we had a purpose from God to grow and be influential. That's the thinking that led to the Louisiana Purchase. It was the justification that was used in the war against Mexico and, and it was used to acquire parts of Oregon from Great Britain. Eventually, a journalist named John O'Sullivan coined a term to describe what this was. He called it the manifest destiny. In other words, he was saying, we have a divine sanction. We have a divine calling from God to expand. This is our right from God 
to do this. Now, the concept eventually lost a little bit of steam because people had trouble reconciling it with slavery and a couple other issues. But throughout the the years, since the 19th century, some leaders have kind of picked it up. Both sides in the Civil War claimed manifest destiny. Woodrow Wilson, when he justified our involvement in World War I, uh, talked about a form of manifest destiny. Actually, in his inauguration speech, he's the only president who ever mentioned the term since the 19th century. Ronald Reagan, when we were fighting the Cold War and when uh, Russia was so, the Soviet Union was so strong and the world was kind of at odds, Ronald Reagan talked about the term of American exceptionalism and the, the calling that God had given us to, to be uh, kind of the strength in the world. Now we're seeing just the opposite. The concept of God's blessing and calling and the importance of the nation's value has been thoroughly diminished. Now you say, all right, Paul, that's interesting, but this is not a civics class and I hated high school history. So why is this important? How does this apply to Luke 12 and how does it apply to my life? Well, let's bring it all together. If people in the 19th century were convinced that God had given them a unique divine calling to expand the nation's borders, how much more should we be convinced that the Lord has set us apart for the fulfillment of Luke 12? If people could justify the Louisiana Purchase, that God has given us a unique calling to be the ones that will spread out and influence the world, then what do we do with the Great Commission? What do we do with Acts 1.8? What do we do with Luke 12? Because God says to us, I trust you with a responsibility. I trust you to be my servants, my ambassadors, my witnesses, and to go into the world and change it. I'm trusting you with this, so I want you to serve faithfully and be completely ready. And you've got a huge responsibility. And remember, you don't have all the time in the world to accomplish it because I'm coming back soon. Now, that's not just some kind of side note from the Lord. Hey, you know, you may want to look at this. That is, if I'm allowed to use the term, our manifest destiny as believers. Not to purchase land. We may get to that at some point as a church. But but this is not about material things. This is about fulfilling the commission of God and expanding the reach of the gospel. To be ready for the Lord's return doesn't mean we're just standing in the doorway going, oh, I hope he's here soon. It means, as we said with the active verbs, to get ready and to get going and to be active and to be strong. What better way to show the Lord that we've been alert when he comes back than to be able to point at all the people that have gotten saved and all the people that have matured and all the people that have become more in love with the Lord because we have been serving him. That's not glory to us. That's glory to God. I want the end of my life to be able to say, not with any degree of pride, but with complete humility, look at all the people whose lives have been affected because I was faithful to the Lord. Don't you want that to be true of your life? That people have been influenced because of, the, because of your service and your sacrifice and your love and your humility. Oh Lord, may that be so of my life and your life and this church. Oh, that this church would be influential. Not so people go, look at Arbor Rock Tabernacle. 
but so they'll say, look at the Lord Jesus Christ who loves us and saved us. I don't care about our reputation that we're known. That makes no difference. I want Jesus to be known. I want people to say, when those people speak, because they love the Lord, it's like God's talking to me himself. Yes, that's what Scripture tells us. Now, I don't know what the Lord's plans are. I know he's got exciting plans for us. And there may be some very unique opportunities as a church and to serve the Lord and to serve this community. But, but there are also some very, very disturbing and sobering events going on in our world. And we don't know when the Lord's going to return, but we do know that he will. Everything is ready. And Jesus said, even as my disciples, you're not going to anticipate it. So with that in mind, we're done. How urgent is our calling? God is saying to you and to me this morning, I trust you to be my servant. And when I come back, what will I find you doing? Will you be the lazy servant that's kind of indifferent and, and uh, whatever? And well, I didn't know, Jesus, that you were coming back when you were. And I didn't anticipate it. I heard that, but, but I thought there was time. Is that going to be us? Or are we going to be the blessed servant who's active and who's got disciplined focus uh, on, on what God wants us to do and who's unrelentingly faithful and who is preoccupied with telling people about the love of God. That's the standard that God's called us to. And he says, I trust you to do it. And nothing less than a complete commitment will be enough. It's a great calling. We're not worthy of it. We can't do it on our own apart from the Holy Spirit. But I know that to whom much is given, much is required. God is entrusting us with this responsibility. And we need to fulfill it. Let's ask Him for His help. Let's close our eyes. Lord, we thank You this morning for an amazing, amazing calling. We don't understand why You would trust us with this. Why you would look at our lives and say, you can do my work. And Lord, in our own ability, we can't do it. We are completely incapable, which is why you've given us your spirit. It's why you've given us your word. It's why you've given us the body of believers to spur one another on to love and good works. You have given us everything we need to fulfill this responsibility that you've trusted us with. So, Lord, as believers this morning and as a church, we place ourselves in your hands. And we ask you to use us however you will. Lord, that people would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That people would mature in their faith. That they'd be equipped to serve so that we can fulfill the responsibility. And Lord, as we do that, I pray this morning that we would be dressed with readiness, that we would be on alert, looking to the sky, not distracted, not, not incapable of doing other things because we're watching and waiting, 
But Lord, one eye to the sky and one eye to the calling that we have. Ready to go, but until then, fervent to serve. Lord, whatever that means for my life this morning, whatever that means for the lives of each person who's here, for this church, Lord, we ask you to reveal that to us. We ask you to give us wisdom and strength to fulfill that calling. And Lord, we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. The lives that are going to change because of how you use us. Lord, may we see that in massive numbers. We look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. And Lord, we trust you with all that we have. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus.